But today, for today's message, I want to open up by talking about how, at least in our language, we use the language of high and low, where high is equal to good and low is equal to bad. When we talk about the highs and lows of life, the highs are those high moments, the celebratory moments, the low moments of life are the moments of challenge. But we also use these words in different ways. I know for myself, whenever we go somewhere in the natural world, you go camping or at the beach, if there's a height I can climb to, I want to climb it. I want to get to the top of the cliff. I want to get to the top of the next cliff. I want to get to the top of the waterfall. And my sons have inherited that idea. When we're in a city and there's a tall building, it's amazing to be, for example, at the top of the Rockefeller Center in New York. We love the heights. Now, for those of you sci-fi geeks out there, I don't watch a lot of sci-fi, but if you kind of look at this thread as well, we see that in these post-apocalyptic moments, these societies are built up and at the top, breathing in the clean air, are the elites and they're high and then the low people are at the bottom, breathing in the pollution, dealing with the criminals around them. If we talk about someone who has achieved great things, we say they've achieved great heights. If we say that someone is of high society, we generally embody someone in our mind who is wealthy and someone who is accomplished. Or someone who is a low human, is a debased human. And uh, this language continues to be used. High is good, low is bad. And that's not a bad thing. But the reason why I bring it up is because those assumptions are going to make hearing today's message very difficult. You see, we're doing a sermon series called The Way of Wisdom, where we're coming to the book of Proverbs to learn God's ways, so that we can live according to God's ways, God's wisdom, so that we can live well in God's world. And this series has been insanely practical. The book of Proverbs is insanely practical, as God has wisdom for our Mondays, for our Tuesdays, for our marriages, for our friendships, for our families. But today may seem less practical, but man, oh man, it is so practical. Today we're talking about humility. But please don't see humility the way you see putting nice rims on your car. And what I mean by that is your car is fine. It works well. And if you really want to dress to impress, then put some nice rims on your car. In the same way, Christianity is not like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to do these things. We listen to 50-something sermons a year. Let's just put humility on par with all of those other kinds of things because I can be a Christian and maybe if I want to be an extra special Christian, I can put on the dressings of humility. To stick with that metaphor, I believe humility is the engine without which, as a Christian, you don't have a Christian. It is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I am absolutely convinced, and I'll show you today, that when we do life from a position of humility, we are most 
like God and we are most representing God to the world. We are most easily to relate to God and relate to and serve others. But the opposite of humility is pride. And the Scriptures say very clearly that we are most like the devil. Not when we're slaughtering cats in our back garden, but when we are living in a state of pride. So I want to start off with two basic points that I believe if we get these points, we have no choice but to humble ourselves. And the first point is going to be we need an accurate theology. And the second big point is going to be and we need an accurate anthropology. Sorry for the four syllable words. We need an accurate theology, an accurate view of God. And we need an accurate anthropology, an accurate view of self. And when we put those two together, humility is quite honestly the only logical outcome with which we can live this life. So let's see how Proverbs talks about theology and our view of God. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge, the beginning of knowledge. Maybe we should have started with these verses. Proverbs 9 verses 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. So according to these three verses, where is wisdom found? It is found in God. And how do we access His wisdom and His knowledge from this posture known as the fear of the Lord? Now, I've been asked dozens of times throughout my years of being in ministry, what on earth does it mean to fear the Lord? You know, a, a number of years ago in my 20s, um, I was climbing up a a rock face in the Drakensberg, like a huge boulder, probably the size of this roof here, and without ropes, <laughs> stupid, yes. And I was trying to get to the top for reasons I explained earlier. And I got about 90% of the way, and I ran out of handholds. And I knew I couldn't go down, and I didn't know how to go up. And I was truly afraid. Is that what God wants for me? when I look at him, to experience that kind of crippling fear? But what about when pastors like me, like I have stood up and said, guys, the Bible says 365 times, once for every day of the year, do not fear. So how can God say 365 times, do not fear? How can I experience at times crippling fear? And now I get to these verses, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without going too deeply into this, just by way of summation, I believe that the overall tone of Scripture is on one hand, do not fear man at all. Secondly, do not fear things over which you have no control. Number three, this is a tough one, but it's from Jesus' own lips. Do not fear those 
who can only destroy the body. Some of you have been in situations where someone has confronted you with the intention to destroy your body and have felt fear. But Jesus continues to say, but fear him, God, who can destroy not only your body, but your soul. So what does that mean? How do we incorporate into this? I think, I mean, I know (laughs) that if we had to see God with unveiled faces, we wouldn't have to ask that question. I think of the Apostle John who lived with Jesus. He's described as the disciple that Jesus loved. He experienced a relational intimacy with the second person of the Trinity. And yet when he saw Jesus in his full glorious state in the book of Revelation, that same Apostle John and that same Jesus, John fell prostrate in front of him. No one had to tell him to fear. He didn't have to conjure to fly straight towards the sun and you would be for at, at some level protected from its radiation and its heat. And, and just imagine flying towards this thing that is just incomputably large. Is that a real word? I just made it up. Just imagine the glory of seeing this thing up close. But imagine the fear as you start to realize this thing's on the, about to consume you. I think those all together start to describe the fear of the Lord. In The line, The Watch in the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis, he says, a version of me. No. As far as the stars that are millions of light waves are away from the surface of planet Earth, so is the wisdom of God above your wisdom. And if your understanding is therefore that all true wisdom and love and knowledge resides in Him, of course, our approach is going to be to humble ourselves before Him and learn His ways so that we can live wisely in His world. But Proverbs takes us further. Not only does he say that pride is kind of like just a bad idea. It's illogical once you've seen God. It's not like some neutral, anti-wise space. Pride in the Scriptures and pride in the book of Proverbs positions you in opposition to God. Let me say it more accurately. God positions himself against you in your pride. And if we've understood the fear of the Lord, that should give us great pause for thoughts. Now, just briefly, when we're talking about pride, I'm not talking about being proud of your, proud of your kids' achievements or the new business you started or the fact that you started some new exercise routine and you stuck with it. I'm talking about the belief that you get to reject the wisdom of God because I know better. Listen to Proverbs 3 verses 34. He mocks proud mockers, 
but gives grace to the humble. This verse is quoted twice in the New Testament, James 4 verses 6 and 1 Peter 5 verses 5 to 6. But they put a bit of a twist on this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So according to these verses, where is grace found? And by grace, I don't simply mean this nice Christian diluted feeling I experience in church. According to this verse, where is who God is, what God wants to give us, and all that God wants to bless us with, where is that found? It is found and received from a posture of humility. But according to this verse, where do we encounter the God of the universe opposing me from a place of pride? And this is why pride is not like one sin amongst many. Most theologians and pastors have come to the understanding Again, looking at the comparisons between pride and the enemy, that pride is probably the root cause underlying all sin. Because at the heart of it, it is saying, I refuse to love you, I refuse to obey you, and I choose to do things my way. This is why if we look at Jesus, Oh, Jesus didn't oppose proud people. Of course he did. Notice how Jesus welcomes sinners that came to him. The kinds of sinners maybe you would be tempted to reject. Prostitutes. People who are stealing money from the masses. He welcomes them. But gets in the face of the religious elite. Not because they were the religious elite, but because they were so proud in their external religiosity that they believed they didn't need to humble themselves in order to receive Jesus Christ. And so Jesus opposed them in their pride. So maybe you've got this picture of what a proud person looks like in your mind. And you're like, well, at least that's not me. That sermon is not for me today. Well, let me ask you, how many times have you heard a message or read something clear in God's Word or been through a devotion where God's will is made crystal clear? And your response is, eh, that was a nice devotion, amen, but I'm not going to do that. Maybe you wouldn't say out loud, I know better than God, but your actions tell a different story. I know for me, that has happened way too many times. When it comes to God's will in marriage, finances, sex, dating, community, service, discipleship, God says with clarity, there are some very difficult passages to understand in Scripture. These are not those. And then we go, huh, 
Maybe yes, maybe no. Right? So I want to plead with you. Not only does pride position you in a place of non-wisdom, but it positions you in opposition to God. Maybe some of you say, but, but Stephen, grace. Grace. Yes, then, but grace. Maybe pride, but grace. Let me tell you as clearly as I can and hear the full argument. Grace is not received in your sin. Grace is received in your repentance. The Christian life isn't, I'm sinning, oh, but grace. Oh, I'm sinning, no, oh, but grace. It is so true. You can never outsin God's grace. There is always more grace than you have capacity to sin. But it is not like that just flows automatically to you. In order to receive that grace, according to Proverbs 3.34, I have to humble myself in repentance, acknowledging before this God, I am wrong. I am weak. I thought better. This is where this accurate anthropology comes in. Not only do we have this God whose ways are infinitely greater than ours, but when we honestly take stock of our own hearts, I'm weak, I'm fragile, I'm sinful, I have blind spots. So humility is the only posture that makes sense. Listen to Proverbs 30 verse 12. There are those who are pure in their own eyes and yet they are not cleansed of their filth. This is the challenge that Jesus had for the Pharisees. Because I do A, B, and C, because everyone looks at me and sees, thinks they're looking at a religious person, I am great in God's eyes. Jesus said, you look great on the outside. But your hearts are wicked and dirty on the inside. These are the blind spots that we have in our lives. Proverbs 26 verses 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. All this to say that when we rightly see God for who he is and when we rightly see ourselves for who we are, Humility is the only logical place to be in. But humility is the space that allows me to access God's grace, God's gifts, God's character, God's nature, and many of the other blessings that flow out of humility. Let's talk about some of these. I want to show you that humility is the best place to be in for growth and achievement and true learning. Proverbs 11 verses 2 says, when pride comes, then comes this grace. Second part of the verse, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 13 verses 10, pride only breeds quarrels. Do you want to know why there are so many quarrels? Today, pride. Truth has been kicked out a long time ago. 
It's pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Guys, both of these Proverbs are saying that humility is the precondition for growth, for wisdom, for true knowledge, and all that that will lead to. And therefore, pride is the precondition to get in the way of those things. But that makes total sense. Don't just believe me. Just think about this logically. If we had to put together the cumulative things that we in this room can do and the things that we cumulatively know, that is exponentially smaller than the things we cumulatively can't do and the things we cumulatively don't know. In other words, I don't care who you are, you don't know everything. We read one article on social media and we believe we're experts. Not only do real experts know way more than you, but real people who know, know what they don't know. A friend of mine got a PhD in maths. When he starts telling me about what he's doing, I, I, I don't know, he could have been speaking ancient Greek. He says, but the thing is, every time they go to these moments where they talk about their theses, he doesn't know what his buddy's talking about in his maths PhD. Guys, we've got so much to learn, so much wisdom to grow into. Humility is the only thing that makes sense. This is something I've had to learn via the school of Knox many times. In the early 2000s, I spent four years studying theology full-time. And some of you have said, oh, it would be wonderful to study theology full-time for four years. Looking back, that was my grade one. This, I don't say this to boast. I, I, in fact, if anything, I say this to show you how my pride has so often gotten in the way. Since then, I've read thousands of articles, hundreds of books. I have written a book. I have preached thousands of sermons. And even more so over the, over the last year or two, I'm starting to feel like I don't know anything. And I mean that. But take Stephen 10 years ago, ask me a question about, you know, it's something that maybe I don't actually know what I'm talking about. No, this is right. That's wrong. That pastor right, that pastor wrong. Sometimes that is the case. We can be humble and have convictions. But what has happened over the last few years, as I've started to speak to people who I haven't maybe previously been exposed to, read some of their books, and not just hear their wisdom, but hear what they have to say, pointing back into God's wisdom, which is God's word. And I've gone, how did I miss that? It's right there in black and white. But because of my own blind spots and because of the own rut that I've been in, I've missed things that are clear as day, but I haven't been able to see them. So I have become very nervous 
about getting dogmatic about certain issues. Because I've been humbled way too many times. I said a few weeks ago, the church today is probably the most divided it's ever been. But I wonder if we could approach our conversations with humility. And even where, via studying and and, and via engaging God's Word, you have a conviction that is certain and true and solid. And of course, there are certain core things we need to know with absolute certainty are true. Even in debating or engaging with those who believe differently, if I do that from a position of humility, I believe Literally, the world would be a better place. So I want to put a, one more little bomb under a wrong idea about humility. Again, going back to our high-low language and assumptions. Humility doesn't mean never grow, never achieve, never experience success, never get to places of huge influence. If Anything, what I've tried to show you is humility is the better path to growth and to achievements and to success. And you're just going to be a greater leader because of it. John Dixon, he's an Australian pastor and theologian and author. A number of years ago, he wrote a book called Humilitas, the Latin word for the word humility. And one of the statements he tries to make is that we inherently actually find humility to be attractive and beautiful in others. I told the story before, years ago, so some of you haven't heard it. But to illustrate his point, he talks about Sir Edmund Hillary. And at one point, because of his conquests on, uh, and his achievements with regard to Mount Everest, he was one of the most famous people on planet Earth. And so one day he was in the Himalayas and a bunch of climbing tourists were there and they asked if they could have a group photo with Sir Edmund Hillary. And so there he was in the middle of the photo and then someone said, won't you just hold up this ice pick, you know, to make it look genuine. And so he did. Another tourist and climber saw this, didn't recognize who was in the middle of the photo, walked up to him and said, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Moved it in his hand and walked away. Now, (laughs) Sir Edmund Hillary could have said, do you know who I am? But here's the thing about that story. Even hearing the story, I don't care how good that other climber was and how accomplished he was. His presumption diminished his greatness. And Sir Edmund Hillary's humility enhanced his greatness. But now John Dixon, in his book, continues to show, particularly in Western society, how, yes, that may be true now, but it hasn't always been the case. So where did this turnaround happen? If you look at the origins of the Western world and the Greek and the Roman empires, they despised humility. In fact, they had this word called philotimia, the love of honor and honor-seeking. The only place to be humble was standing before the emperor. 
everywhere else you were to put yourself forward, promoting your greatness and your honor. So how did we get from a position of honor seeking to a place where humility is seen as a beautiful, attractive value in our culture? And so he did a study through Macquarie University in, the, in Australia. Macquarie University is a secular university. And here's what they discovered. There was a humility revolution in the Middle East in the middle of the first century. Centering around a teacher from Nazareth who taught humility and equated humility with greatness. If you want to be great, you must serve. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This was so upstream from where the rest of culture was at the time. But not only was it the teachings of this man from Nazareth, more specifically was the crucifixion of this man. Because as this man, Jesus Christ, and of course we understand him to be fully man and fully God, if the greatest being to physically walk around planet Earth ever in all of history climbed onto a cross, the most humiliating place in the Roman Empire, the place for the most despised of criminals, and yet if God displayed the greatest moments of His saving glory at that point in time, that meant we've had humility the wrong way around and we've got to redefine humility and how it connects to greatness. And one more thing that he discovered was that in the ancient literary world, the first text to equate humility with greatness, Philippians chapter 2. I want to read it for you. While the Gospels talk about the life of Jesus as preceding the moment where the church of Philippi was active, some of these letters that were written were written before the Gospels were written. And not only was the book of Philippians written before some of the Gospels, but this particular passage I'm going to read, all scholars, including secular scholars, agree that they are quoting from a pre-existing piece of literature. Therefore, making this the first historic text to connect humility with greatness. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, the most glorious being, above and beyond creation, 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to. That he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. You know, earlier I mentioned that in order for us to truly engage in humility, we need to have a good theology, understanding of God. We also need to have an accurate anthropology and understanding of self. But here we've got a good Christology and a good, sorry for the five syllables, soteriology. How God worked to save us and what God did to save us. And not only do I access His grace by humbling myself before this God, saying, you, Jesus, did what I could not do. You lived the life I could not live. You paid the price for my sin that I could not pay. That and trusting Jesus is how I access God's saving grace. But even beyond that, this is not only about how we are saved, because Paul says, now embody that to one another. Man, I get so disheartened sometimes by what I see in the world around me. I get so disheartened so often by the many challenges the church is facing. And by the way, nothing new under the sun. Just read church history and you'll see how messy this has been. But having said that, I get so encouraged when I read a passage like Philippians 2. And the Proverbs verses that we've read today that God wants to bless you with his wisdom. That God wants to give you grace. And he wants to pour into your heart and your life. He wants to save you. And he also wants us to represent him well in this world. And he promises to provide what we need in order to do that. And I get so filled with hope. That is why my hope is ultimately in Jesus. But the living and presence Jesus who humbled himself so that I can live. So I'm going to ask now that you close your eyes as we pray together. I wonder what God laid on your heart. As we've kind of covered a number of bases concerning pride, how that maybe plays itself out in my life, my view of God, my view of his infinite wisdom, my view of self, have I vastly overestimated myself and the real distance between me and God? 
But also, I wonder if for anyone here in this room, today is the first day where you've truly appreciated what God did in Jesus Christ by humbling himself even unto death so that you can live. So Holy Spirit, would your voice and your finger be like a laser in our hearts this morning? And I just want to give you 30 seconds to respond to that. Lord, this is what you have said. This is what you've highlighted. Here is where I've been wrong. Here's where I've relied on my righteousness or my self-sufficiency. Here's where I've rejected your wisdom, which is ridiculous. And yet my heart found a way to justify that. But Jesus, I need you. So I humble myself today. Jesus, I pray that right now that as we humble our hearts and as we choose to live from a place of humility, I know everything in us is saying this is so humiliating. And yet, God, you are going to lavish us with grace and supply and life and wisdom and knowledge and salvation. So God, would that be true? Would you give what you have promised in this place of humility? Grace, abundant grace from an infinitely good and infinitely wise God. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.